Welcome to the Resurrection Church Podcast. Resurrection Church exists for the glory of God and the joy of His people. If you're looking for a church in the upstate of South Carolina, please join us 9 and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 900 North Main Street in Greer, South Carolina. We pray you'll be blessed by this message. So glad you're here. Um, before I read the text, the sermon text this morning, we've mentioned this throughout the study of Habakkuk about almost each week, but I wanted to highlight it again. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible, the NASB, this morning because Bradley's going to be teaching from that translation. And I just want you to know that we're Resurrection Church is not a King James Version church. We're not an ESV church. We're not an NASB church, but we're a word church. We elevate the word. We... We strive, you know, Acts 6-4 says, that talking about the apostles, that they, they devoted themselves to the ministry of prayer and to the ministry of the Word. The Word is important. And what we do here as Resurrection Church is we treasure hunt. Do we not? We, 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 we seek out the treasure that is Jesus and the triune God. And looking at this book... Uh, and looking at the original language, we felt like the NASB does it justice. So that's why we're teaching out of it, and that's why I'm reading out of it this morning. Uh, so follow on the screen. Um, and if you have a Bible app that you can switch a translation, if you want to do that to NASB, feel free to do that. Book of Habakkuk, in between Nahum and Zephaniah in the Old Testament. If you want to turn there, and we'll start reading in chapter 3. In verse 1, if y'all could stand in reverence to the reading of God's Word. Chapter 3, verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigionot. Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God comes from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his grace. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand and there is the hiding of his power. Before him goes pestilence and plague comes after him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Did the Lord rage against the rivers, or was your anger against the rivers, or was your wrath against the sea that you, that you rode on your horses on your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. Selah. You cleave the earth with rivers, the mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of water swept by, the deep uttered forth its voice, it lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their places, they went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. In indignation you marched through the earth, in anger you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exultation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound of my lips quivered, decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Um, before we dive in, um, this weekend is a time where in the United States of America, we pause to appreciate and celebrate our veterans. So if you are a veteran in um, military service or if you're currently serving, would you stand and let us recognize you? Yeah, let's honor our veterans. Thank you.
We celebrate you and appreciate you this morning. Amen? Um, one of the interesting things about this study through Habakkuk for me has been, I think, you can tell me if you agree, how easy it's been, relatively speaking, to identify with Habakkuk. You know, when, when Habakkuk looks at Judah, which is where he's a prophet, it's the southern kingdom of Israel, and he sees uh, this moral, spiritual, and societal decline and decay and a rejection of worship of the living God among many people. Justice is perverted, he says. The law is paralyzed. He complains to God, and he, he feels like everything's wrong and God's not doing anything right about it. We identify with that, right? And then God responds and says, well, I am doing something about it. But you wouldn't believe it if I told you, here's what I'm doing. I'm raising up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, which was the world power of the day. And they were sweeping through at this point in history, nation after nation, kingdom after kingdom, decimating cities and taking people captive. And they're coming for Judah. So in addition to the decline in Judah, they see a tsunami coming. And God says, guess what, about I'm raising them up. I'm raising them up to judge my people for their wickedness. And then I'm going to turn around and judge them for doing exactly what I raised them up to do. And guess what Habakkuk does? He complains again, which we get, right? Because when, when, when you hear God say, look, here's what I'm doing. And you're not going to believe what I'm doing because this is one of the things I've said is that, you know, God is doing calculus and we're still working on two plus two. His ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are higher than ours. And so when God doesn't make sense, when we can't reconcile the God we know with what we see, feel, and experience, when it seems like maybe even God's acting out of character, we struggle with that and we, we're tempted to complain. Well, that's exactly what Habakkuk did, and we identify with that. He's like, God, you seem to be acting out of character. I know you have pure eyes. You cannot look on with favor on the wicked, and yet it seems like that's exactly what you're doing. We identify with that. And then we might have also identified with this. Habakkuk had come to the place in his journey with the living God that he realized, even though he couldn't understand, the problem was him, not God. And so he said, I'm going to park it in my tower. I'm going to wait for you to answer, and I'll see how I'll respond when I am corrected, when I'm reproved. Well, God does just that. That's what we looked at last week. God says, you know, here, here, here's the deal, Habakkuk. If I were to sum up chapter 2, God gives an, an answer to Habakkuk, but not an explanation. And that answer is this. It's the crossroads of humanity. You either live by faith. In other words, you trust me, even though you don't understand, because faith is not always comprehension of the plan. But faith is always dependence on the planner. So we got two options, live by faith or die by pride. That's chapter two. And now I wonder, I wonder if it's going to be as easy for us to identify with Habakkuk now. After he's heard the response, here's what he says. Verse one and two again. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianot. Lord, I have heard the report about you. I've heard what you've said. It's literally what that means. And I fear. Everybody say fear. Oh, Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. One thing I want us to understand. You, you see that weird word in there? Shigianot. We had a lot of fun with that in the elders' meeting. Um, here, here's what it is. If you've ever looked at a piece of classical music, uh, like a piano score, if you're familiar with that, there'll be these little Italian words sprinkled throughout all the notes that you play. And those words might be something like piano or forte. Those, those are dynamic indicators. In other words, the, the word piano means play this section softly. The word forte means play it loudly and aggressively. That's kind of what Shigianoth is. This is a song, and Shigianoth gives us not just, we don't just have the words of the song, we've got the dynamic of the song, and here's what it means. It's wild and passionate and emotional. In other words, Habakkuk's not saying, Lord, I've heard what you said, and I fear. No, this is, 
I'm not even going to try to do it because my voice is about to go. But this is wild, passionate. Lord, I've heard you and I fear, tremble. And he says, revive your work. In other words, do your thing. I fear you. I'm scared. Don't dumb that word down. Okay? We talk about the fear of the Lord and it, in, in a lot of cases for Christians, that doesn't get past. We take our hats off when we pray. We, you know, we don't let our kids run around in the sanctuary. No, this is tremble. I'll get to verse 16, but did you hear what Habakkuk said? Rottenness enters my bones and I tremble. This is the same word that Adam used when they had eaten the fruit. God came walking in the garden and said, where are you, Adam? And Adam pipes up and says, I hid because I was afraid. This is where Habakkuk is. I fear, do your thing, and remember mercy. I wonder if we identify with that. It's kind of like, not apples to apples by any stretch, but if you're familiar with the story of King Kong, Right? Everybody's seen at least one King Kong movie, right? <clears throat> well, there was one that came out in 2005, and it was the classic story, right? There's this island where weird things happen. There are these huge beasts everywhere. And on this island also is a giant ape, King Kong, that the natives think is a god. Well, these explorers come to the island. There's an expedition. And, of course, there's got to be a damsel in distress, right? That's classic. So these natives capture this you know, beautiful blonde lady and they offer her as a sacrifice to King Kong because they think he's a god. And he takes her. He takes her and he's kind of intrigued with her, this giant ape. It's such a ridiculous thing, isn't it? <clears throat> he's intrigued with her, but she is scared to death. And rightly so, right? A giant ape has me. What's he gonna do? Is he gonna kill me? Is he gonna eat me? She's scared to death, and she tries to escape, but he won't let her. He keeps, keeps her in like a little pet. Well, finally, King Kong falls asleep, and she sees her opportunity, and she escapes. She breaks free, and she's running through the jungle of this strange and mysterious island, and lo and behold, as she runs through the jungle, she comes across a dinosaur, a giant Tyrannosaurus rex foaming at the mouth, drooling, staring at her, growling. She's puny in comparison to it. She's scared to death. And all of a sudden, King Kong comes bounding out of the jungle and lands behind her and stands there. And it's an incredible scene. She looks at the dinosaur. She looks at King Kong. She looks back at the dinosaur, and here's what, there's terror on both sides. She looks back at that dinosaur and she does this. She backs up under King Kong's legs and arms. She somehow had come to the place where she had a sense. Maybe this giant scary beast, who's actually more scary than the dinosaur, might protect me. This is where Habakkuk is. The Chaldeans are scary. But God is more scary. But I have a sense that maybe, I know he's gonna do his thing. Revive your work. In the midst of the years, make it known. I know you're gonna do your thing. Even though it doesn't make sense to me. As scary as it is, the Chaldeans are scary. You're more scary. But in wrath, remember mercy. And he backs up under the shadow of the Almighty. This is powerful. And I wonder if we get it. Folks, hear me. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a category in your mind for a God who will instill in you his people the fear of him for your own good? Go with me to Jeremiah, chapter 32. <clears throat> Jeremiah 32. And again, guy, I'm going to start in verse 36. Jeremiah 32, verse 36. 
This is a prophecy that is about the same invasion that's coming for Habakkuk by the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. Verse 36, Now therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning this city which you say is given into the hand of the king of Babylon, same as the Chaldeans, by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, the Lord says, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, and in great indignation, and I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. That is God saying, I'm going to judge my people through the Chaldeans, and I'm going to scatter them. They're going to be in exile, but I'm going to bring them back. Why, God? Why are you doing it this way? They shall be my people, verse 38, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one, one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. What's God doing? We may not understand how he's doing things or why he's doing things the way that he's doing th things, but here's what he's ultimately up to, that his people would fear them, fear him for their good and for the good of their children. Not just this take your hat off, make sure you dress up nice before you go to church kind of respect fear, but literally terror. God's a scary God. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. You know, deer in headlights, first service was too. Ecclesiastes. If you go to Song of Solomon, you've gone too far. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. This is right after the famous <clears throat> passage where, you know, the writer says, there's a time to live, there's a time to die, there's a time to mourn, there's a time to dance. You know, what's interesting about those verses is there's no pattern to it. It goes from good to bad, bad to good, bad, bad, good, good. It doesn't, there's no pattern. It seems random in a sense. But look at what the writer says about all that. Verse 11, he's made everything appropriate in its time. Folks, everything God does is right. Everything he designs, the way he does things, how he causes things to happen, it's always appropriate. He makes everything appropriate in his time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. In other words, God has put in us a longing for the eternal perspective. But we don't have it yet. And that's purposeful. Why? I know, verse 12, that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it, for God has so worked that men should fear him. What's God doing? Why is he doing things the way he's doing them? We may not understand that in its immediate context every time. Habakkuk did not. But here's the place that he's come to. He fears the Lord. And that is consistent. God has been consistent throughout Scripture. He works in such a way for his people's good that they would fear him. That they would, again, I'm not trying to make a one-to-one -one correlation, but like that beautiful blonde staring down a dinosaur in front of her and King Kong behind her, she backs up to the beast that really is more scary than the dinosaur, more powerful than the dinosaur, but the one that she has a sense might protect her. This is where Habakkuk is. I fear you. You're going to do your thing. But in wrath, remember mercy. Why does God do this? How is it for our good? That's really the question. 
we, in the modern church, we don't talk about the fear of God. You know, I, I, would, I would be curious to poll this congregation and ask you, how many times have you heard a sermon about the fear of God? How often have you considered that God, who is love, is light, is mercy, is grace, is good, who's made incredible promises to his people, is also a God that to behold him is terrifying. It's terrifying. Such that Habakkuk would say, I tremble before you. Rottenness enters my bones. This is the God who says, the righteous will live by faith. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. How often have we paused and considered the fear of God and that God is actually working in us in such a way that we might fear him? You know, this is a song. Chapter 3 is a song. It's a psalm. In addition to the dynamic indicator in that weird word, shigyanoth, there are also, did you notice the selahs? We've seen those in the psalms. The word means pause. So with Habakkuk, who is now fearing God and also calling for mercy, we're going to look at the three places or the three points at which Habakkuk calls us to pause or that he himself pauses as he considers the God he knows and the God he now fears. Let's look at that. The starting in verse 3 of chapter 3. And Lord, help my voice. Chapter 3, verse 3. God comes from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. The Selah, it, it, each Selah is going to reach a little bit behind and a little bit before. It's not specific to the, only to the verse that it's listed in. So there's a, there's a section here that Habakkuk, I think, is calling us to pause on. And the first thing we get is a geographical location. Taman and Mount Paran, if you look at that on a map, the geographical center of those two points is Mount Sinai. I think this is where Habakkuk goes. God, I fear you. Do your thing. In wrath, remember mercy. And then his mind, under inspiration of the Spirit, goes back to rehearse the events that include both what happened before, during, and after the Exodus. And what follows, I think, are poetic pictures of some of those events. Let's look at this. Verse, the end of verse 3. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. His, he has rays flashing from his hand, and there is the hiding of his power. That may be, it's not entirely clear, but that may be a reference to what actually happened at Sinai. You remember, they come out of Egypt, they come to the mountain, God makes himself known, and it's essentially this, thunder, lightning, smoke, don't touch the mountain, don't get too close, or you'll die. That was the instruction. I think Habakkuk's mind is going back to that. Verse 5, before him goes pestilence and a plague comes after him. What does that sound like? The plagues. You remember the plagues, right? When the children of Israel were in Egypt, Pharaoh wouldn't let them go. God sends 10 plagues. You know what's interesting about the plagues? Every plague was a direct assault on the false gods of Egypt. When the Nile was turned to blood, it was God saying, the river's not a God. I am God alone. When the sun was dark for three days, the sun's not a God. I am God alone. When the angel of death came through and swept through Egypt and the firstborn of every Egyptian household died, including Pharaoh's household, Pharaoh's not a God. I am God alone. I think Habakkuk is remembering this. Verse 6, he stood and surveyed the earth and he looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed and his ways are everlasting. This could be, not entirely sure, could be Habakkuk thinking about Jericho. 
You remember the story of Jericho. They marched around those great walls and they tumbled. When Joshua sent the spies in and they, they went and they met at the house of Rahab, Rahab said, we've heard about what your God did at the Red Sea. And when we heard you're coming, we shuddered. We trembled. This could be Habakkuk remembering how, when they actually began to take possession of the land. Verse 7, I saw the tents of Kishon under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. I don't know exactly what the tents of Kishon refer to, but at one point God told Moses to go in and kill every male in the land of Midian. And the Lord was with Moses and the people of Israel as they obeyed him in that. I think Habakkuk is rehearsing the events of the Exodus. Why? Why? That's the key. Why does God instill in his people the fear of him for their good? How is it for their good? Go with me to Exodus chapter 14. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 14. <clears throat> We're at the Red Sea. Probably one of the, if, if not the most climactic moment in the Exodus. Is that fair? I mean, the parting of the Red Sea, come on. Swallowing up the Egyptian army. It's incredible. Pharaoh changed his mind. He let the people go and he changed his mind. He mounts up all his chariots and horses and he sends them after. He says, bring those slaves back to me. And the people of God find themselves between a rock and a hard place. They're staring at the Red Sea in front of them and the Egyptian army's bearing down behind them. And God fends them off with a cloud, right? And says, through Moses, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And we, you know the story. The Red Sea parts. And they walk across, not on slushy ground, dry ground. It rains for five minutes and you got grass all over your shoes. They walked on dry ground. And they get to the other side. Verse 29 of Exodus 14. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. And the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Can you imagine how scary that must have been? How small they must have felt? But it keeps going. Thus, verse 30, Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And, the, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Picture walking through those walls of water. Picture, feel the terror that they must have felt, even as they're amazed and in awe of what God is doing. And then put yourself on the other side, standing on the seashore after the waters crashed down on the Egyptian army. And what are you beholding? Dead bodies everywhere. God did not have to let them see that, but he did. Why? Verse 31, when Israel saw the great power which Yahweh had used against the Egyptians, the people what? Feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Do you know what the difference is between standing on that seashore and being a dead corpse floating in the sea. You know what the difference is? Mercy. In wrath, Habakkuk says, remember mercy. What does Habakkuk know about this scary God? That he's merciful to his people. We Jonathan said this in the elders' meeting the other night. We run past mercy to grace. We, we love to, listen, his grace is amazing. 
What manner of love is this that we should be called the children of God and yet that is what we are. That's grace. We got something far better than what we deserve. But folks, we're never going to savor that the way that we should unless we fear God. Unless we come to the place where we realize that the difference between me living and me dead crushed under the wrath of a perfectly holy and righteous God is one thing, mercy. Why is it good for us to fear God? Why is it good for God to work in us, his people? Why is it good for us and good for our children? It's because it shines the spotlight all the more on the fact that there is we didn't merit anything. We didn't earn anything. We weren't good enough. We didn't make our way into the kingdom because we were less wicked than those people. There's only one thing. It's his mercy. Our sins, they are many. But his mercy is, his mercy is brand new. When's the last time you felt yourself shudder at the thought, tremble before this God whose mercy is brand new every morning. Like that should cause us, I think, to tremble. Thank you for your mercy because I deserve to be floating in that sea. That's Selah number one. Pause right there and realize it's his kindness when he leads us to fear him because we savor mercy all the more. Here's Selah number two. Verse eight. <clears throat> Did the Lord rage against the rivers or was it your anger against the rivers or was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. Selah. You cleaved the earth or divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you in quake. The downpour of your waters swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. In indignation, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled nations. I think verse 8 is a rhetorical question. When God pours out his wrath, is his wrath his rage against the sea? When he parted the waters, was, it, was his wrath against the sea? Was it against the rivers? It's, it's a ridiculous question that's really meant to point us to an obvious answer. His wrath is never random. Does that make sense? This, is God scary? yes. Like, if you've got this cuddly little image of God, like he's this big teddy bear upstairs with a long gray beard that, you know, a Santa Claus kind of figure, you know, you poke him in the belly and he goes, woohoo. I know I combined a lot of things there. <laughs> it's not who God is. And I, you know what? I think one of the challenges of the Christian life is, is to behold this God as he's revealed himself in Scripture, rightly. Because he is our Father, and he's a good Father. That's how Jesus instructed us to relate to him. A Father who knows what we need before we even ask. A Father whose loving kindness and mercy knows no end. But he's also the God that swallows up armies and tramples nations. And in his wrath, when he pours out his wrath in judgment, it's never random. It's always purposeful. That's Habakkuk's point. He wasn't raging against seas and rivers like he's a, you know, a, a two-year-old throwing a tantrum up in heaven. No, it's purposeful. Purposeful for what? Verse 12 again. In indignation... You marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled 
the nations. Why does he trample the nations? He's judging wickedness. And it's purposeful and it's intentional. We don't always understand it. Because when God uses wicked people to judge people less wicked than they from our perspective, we complain. When events like 9-11 happen or we see the carnage going on on the Gaza Strip, we find ourselves identifying with Habakkuk going, God, what are you doing? His ways are not always going to make sense to us. He hasn't told us everything. But here's what we can know. We can know that his wrath is never random. It's never reckless. It's always purposeful. It's always intentional. Which, if you let it, if you let the Holy Spirit work in you, what does it do? It buoys our confidence in this God that though he's scary, we find ourselves, do your thing, and in wrath, remember mercy. It bolsters. It's How many of you have been to Charleston? You've been on the cobblestone streets? You know where those stones came from? Ships. When they came across the ocean, <coughs> they gathered up stones from England, and they used them as ballast in the boat, and those stones became the cobblestone streets in downtown Charleston. Why does a boat need ballast? When you come across the raging seas and the storms come, the the winds and waves rage, you need ballast in that boat to keep it upright, to keep it balanced. The fear of the Lord is the ballast in our boat of faith. We're not always going to understand. And sometimes, sometimes when God pours out his wrath, the calamity comes nigh the, the homes and the lives of the righteous who are living by faith. We don't always understand that. We don't always understand that, but here's what we can know, and our confidence in him can be bolstered. It's never random. It's never reckless. It's purposeful. It's intentional. God is working the fear of him in his people. That's going to be the ballast in our boat, and God is always faithful to his promises. I've never seen the righteous, parentheses, who are living by faith, forsaken, or their seed begging bread. God will be faithful to his people. Back it said it, chapter 1, verse 12. We won't die. You're not going to let us be wiped off the planet. Why? Because through Jacob, many, many, many centuries before, the prophetic word was declared, the scepter will not depart from Judah. Habakkuk knows that. He knows. He's rehearsing. God's not throwing a tantrum and raising against seas. He's judging the wicked. And that's scary for the righteous. But I fear you. Do your thing. And in wrath, remember mercy. He backs up into the shadow of the Almighty. And his confidence is bolstered. Why is it good for God to instill the fear of him in his people? Because it not only puts the spotlight on mercy so that we can savor that the right way, but it also puts the ballast in our boat. The ballast of confidence in this God that when the winds and seas rage, we don't turn from him, we run to him. It's the fear of the Lord. That's... Selah number two, pause right there, church. Pause right there and consider that. Here's number three. Verse 13. You went forth for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed, you struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. Selah, you pierced with his own spears the head of his thrones. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exultation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. 
Why does God do things this way? Why does he raise up wicked people? And just when, for his good purpose, he raises up and uses, allows, whatever words you're comfortable with there, uses wicked people and wicked deeds to serve his good purpose. And just when those wicked people think they've won, he turns their own spears on them. Is that what he said? You pierced with his own spear, the evil one, the head of his throngs. They stormed into scatters. Their exultation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. They're not going to win. They're serving God's good purpose. It's why God would say of Pharaoh, he's my servant. Said to Pharaoh, I've raised you up so that I can put my own power on display. And when he does that, as much as it confounds us, why is he doing it? Look at verse 13 again. You went forth for the what? Say it again. Say it one more time. The salvation of your people. When God works fear in his people, it not only puts the spotlight on his mercy so that we can savor that the right way, it not only adds ballast in our boat, confidence in him as we navigate the troubled waters that he's bringing, but it also saves us. How does the fear of God save us? Think about it. The righteous will live by, without faith it's impossible to please God, right? When God instills fear in his people that leads us to savor his mercy and bolsters our confidence in him, he's actually working in us the very thing that's going to save us. Faith. The righteous will live by faith. Seems like we, you remember this from Philippians? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. When he judges the wicked, it's for the salvation of his people. When he pours out his wrath, it's not random. It's highlighting his mercy. And it's putting ballast in our boat of faith. And it's increasing our confidence. It's increasing our trust. It's growing our faith when we fear him. And that faith that he's working in us is the very thing by which we will live and not die. When God pours out his wrath on the Egyptians... It was for the salvation of his people, right? When God raises up the Chaldeans to judge the wicked in Judah and then turn around, turns around and pours out his wrath on the Chaldeans, why is he doing that? For the salvation of his people. When Jesus hung on a cross, God poured out his wrath on his own son, for the salvation of his people. Every year, folks, we come to this place on the calendar called Good Friday. It's a, it's a day where we remember the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. And it's one of the most bloody and gruesome days in human history where an innocent one, listen, picture Jesus in the garden, sweating as it were great drops of blood, saying, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. What's he praying there? I've said this before. I don't think that his angst was about the physical torture. If you know anything about crucifixion, you die by suffocation. The only way you can get a breath is to push up on your hands and feet in order to get your chest up far enough, expanded enough to catch a breath. And you're doing this for hours with nails driven through your hands and feet. So every time, it's either pain or breathe. The flogging, which should have killed him, 
gruesome, bloody. I don't think that's why he was sweating great drops of blood. I think it's because he knew the cup he was about to drink was not just physical torture. It was the wrath of God for the sins of his people. God poured out his wrath on his son, the innocent one, so that we might be saved, so that we might live. It wasn't random. It was intentional, and it was purposeful. And we should gaze upon the cross. The old song says, I will cling to the old rugged cross. And yes, we should feel gladness and joy, but we should also fear God. He's not a God to be trifled with, but he is a God we can trust. I will set my hope on Christ as I fear the living God. Did not Jesus say, don't fear him who can kill the body and after that there's nothing else they can do. Fear him who after he's killed has the power to throw you into hell. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You know, I would challenge you. Selah. Pause with a back because I think at this point in this tiny little book tucked away towards the end of our Old Testaments, this might be the part where we struggle to identify because the modern church has presented to us a God who is all about us and is just into giving us everything we want exactly like we want and need it. We don't have a concept for a God who says, I'm in my temple, my glory's gonna fill the earth. And when my glory fills the earth, the wicked are gonna cry for the mountains to fall on them. You realize that's written in Revelation not to the wicked who are actually gonna do that. That's written to us. It's written to us to realize this is our God. And yes, when his glory fills the earth, it will be our joy. But one of the essentials, and here's a little teaser for next week. One of the essentials for our joy in God is the fear of God. And, and, and we need a new category for that, don't we? We need a new category for a God who instills in us the fear of him so that we trust him all the more. We think we run from things that we are afraid of. God actually works fear in his people so that they run to him, not away from him. So we need a new category for that. We also need a new category for God, the God who works fear in his people, not only for their confidence in him, but also for their joy in him. Because a little teaser, here's what Habakkuk says. After he says, rottenness enters my bones and I tremble, He also says this, I rejoice in the God of my salvation. That's next week. Fear and joy. Let's pray together. Lord, help us pause. I feel this. I, I'm guilty of this. I run from one thing to the next. I, I run from one day to the next. And, and I don't think I ever, I, I, don't, I don't lose my affection for you. I don't lose my confidence in you. But Lord, sometimes I think I forget what it means to fear you. And I don't, I don't want us to leave here today thinking that we've got to stir this up on our own. You're doing this work in us. You're the God who works in, and then we work out what you're working in. So with Habakkuk this morning, here's our simple prayer. We've heard you, and we fear. And I think there's a lot of people in this room that would join me and join Habakkuk in the amen of God, do your thing. 
do your thing for the salvation of your people. And as frightful as it may feel for us to pray this, we pray that you would instill in us all the more the fear of you because we need that ballast in our boat. We need that perspective in order to savor and celebrate your mercy the way you intend us to. And we need it for our own salvation. So Lord, work that in us. Maybe lead us to tremble. Maybe lead us to just pause and consider you're the God who works fear of you in your people for their good and for the good of their children. Generations are at stake here. I look at this room and I see the faces of moms and dads, grandmothers and grandfathers. I see husbands and wives, single people. Lord, do your thing and lead your people to fear you so that our trust may grow, so that our faith may grow, and perhaps ultimately that our joy in you may grow. We fear you, and we trust you. We love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. We hope you've been blessed by this message from Resurrection Church. Please visit resfaith.com. That's R-E-Z faith.com, where you can find more sermon archives, learn more about our church, and find a place to give to our ministry. We'd be glad to hear from you. Drop us an email at connect at resfaith.com. Dot com.